Welcome to Cornerstone, where we are seeing lives changed through the truth of God's Word and the love of God's people. We're glad you've joined us. Today, we'll be hearing from our lead pastor, Daniel Ostendorf. Listen in and be encouraged as we spend some time in God's Word together. Morning. It is good to be together today. Uh, as you can tell from my voice, I'm a little under the weather. Um, so sorry you get frog voice today, um, or radio voice, or my wife's voice, as somebody described at last service. I don't quite know what to make of that one. Um, don't tell Lauren that somebody said that. Um, but it's so good to be together. Uh, a couple of things I just want to start off with. First of all, thank you, church. You guys showed up in a huge way and bring, giving gifts to the Pregnancy Resource Center of Fort Bend County. And this last week, we were able to bless nearly 50 single moms, and over 120 kids with gifts. And it was really sweet to get to partner with Sugar Creek Baptist, Sugar Creek Baptist, who hosted the party near the Pregnancy Resource Center, and and know that these women and these children were hearing the gospel and the good news of Christmas presented along with a gift from you all. So thank you for loving those you have never met. Thanks for loving those who are in a hard place. And we'll learn more about that actually today. So thanks for living that out. I want to say a special thanks to Jeremy uh, for bringing Tommy Walker last weekend. I wasn't able to be here because our family's been wrestling with sickness. Um, but just a sweet weekend I was able to watch online uh, to worship together. Well, sickness is going around. And in my first year in, in Houston, if I've learned anything, it's that Houston prides itself in being first in the state of Texas. Now, let's just say there are some things that's worth running ahead of the pack on and leading the way. The flu and sickness is not one of them. So let's just, oh, hold on, I just turned it off. So here we go. This is this week's report from HoustonHealth.org, the Houston Health Department. That yellow line at the bottom is the flu rate for Texas. And Houston, we have tripled the rate for the rest of the state. This is not something we want to win at, um, but if you feel like you're beat down, if you feel like you're the walking dead right now, if it feels like people are dropping like flies around you from uh, stomach bugs to flu to COVID to RSV, it's because we're getting hit, uh, and more so in our city than in the state. So I just want to invite us to pray for our neighbors, pray for our family, give ourselves grace if you are wrestling through a season of sickness. Um, Jeremy's family was sick, Samuel's family is sick, my family is sick, and I know several of you have been battling sickness over the last month. In addition to that, if you are well, I want to encourage you to look for ways to love and care for those who are sick. My family was blessed this week with several meals. And I just got to tell you, as a dad whose wife never gets sick, but she was in bed for three days straight, caring for kids, trying to prepare a sermon, trying to finish up schoolwork for a seminary— It was a rough week, and I was so thankful for those meals. So if you brought us a meal, thank you. Um, But I know that we're not the only ones who are blessed by that. So if you see others and that opportunity to serve, I encourage you to do so. Well, it is a joy to be with you this morning. It's hard to believe it's been a year. And I cried a year ago uh, when I heard the news of the vote, and I cried this morning. It is humbling and incredibly an incredible blessing to get to be a part of this church. And so thank you for inviting my family to be here. I want to talk this morning and continue our series on the birth of a king. And as we do, I'm actually going to point back to that sermon a year ago. It was fun to see some connections there. Um, but if you haven't heard it and you didn't, don't worry, you're not going to be lost. All right. Well, God's desire for us from the beginning of Scripture all the way through, from the beginning of, of creation all the way through the end, is to have a relationship with us. And what's incredible, I was reflecting on this this week, is that he is not the God of the Enlightenment who, who wound up the clock and walked away. No, he is the God who created and then remained present and engaged in his creation. 
We think of Adam and Eve walking around the Garden of Eden in Genesis with God. What a gift. And you know what? Fast forward to the end of the story in Revelation, and guess what? We get to spend eternity face-to-face with God. And in between, God has pursued relationship with us. In the Old Testament, it was through the tabernacle. He tabernacled amongst his people. He is presence among them. And then, of course, as we celebrate in this season, God, Emmanuel, has come to be with us in Jesus Christ. And as Jesus ascends, he leaves his Holy Spirit for us. Church, let's never miss the, the claim of Christmas, but also the claim of Scripture that is unique among all religions. That the God who created is the God who wants to be in relationship with you. Who has made a way to be in relationship with you. Who desires for us to be in relationship with him. Well, today we're going to pick up uh, the second half of chapter 1. And it's in the second half that we get this beautiful phrase. Emmanuel, God with us. So I want us to keep that as kind of the the background for today. That that God has come to dwell with us, to be amongst us. And that was not just true in this story. It has been true of the character of our God since creation. Well, you might remember two weeks ago we kicked off a a new series that we're going to be in uh, on and off for the next two years on Matthew. Looking at the king and his kingdom. And we'll spend this month in Matthew 1 and 2. Then in January, we're going to kick to the end of the story to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. The reason I'm doing that is I want us to see a thread that Matthew winds throughout his gospel. Two weeks ago, what we saw was that in the genealogy, the good news of Jesus coming was good news for all people. For Jew and Gentile. And guess what? At the end of Matthew, what are we called to share? The good news for all people to all people. So next week, we're going to, or next month, we're going to dive into Matthew 28. And then in February, we're going to pop back into 3 and 4. Because as we'll see, Matthew is spending the first four chapters of his book building his foundation, pouring his foundation, as it were, for the house he's building. And then the rest of the, the study will be on the teachings of Jesus Christ. So that's where we're headed. And then we'll take a break in March, April, and May and return in June to Matthew. Just a quick recap, you might remember Matthew, known as Levi in some of the Gospels, was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was a Jewish tax collector, likely wealthy given his occupation, likely despised by his own people. He chose a a, a lucrative career, but it came at a cost of being ostracized by his people that he took taxes from. We know he's wealthy too because he actually hosts a a party for Jesus, and, and that party is full of sinners and tax collectors. And so he had a home that was large enough to host this party, and he could host it. We know about Matthew, too, is that he is meticulous. Matthew's gospel, more than any other gospel, gives us a fuller and more systematic account of Jesus' life. We will see more in Matthew of Jesus' three years on earth than we see in any of the other gospels. And as he presents it, he is meticulous in his work, as you'd expect from a tax collector. Now, Matthew, primarily being a Jew... And being a Jew that had been ostracized and a Jew that had been called by Jesus, follow me, and had seen his life transformed by Jesus, Matthew's heart and passion of his gospel is to convey to his fellow Jews, this is the Messiah we've we've waited for. This is the King of kings. This is the anointed one we are promised. And I want you to see that, that you might follow him. So Matthew is primarily, though not exclusively, written to a Jewish audience. Matthew, more than any other of the gospel writers, will hearken back to the Old Testament. In fact, 53 times in his book. Because it's written to a Jewish audience by a Jewish author, there are areas in this book that are hard for us to get our head around. We saw that two weeks ago in the genealogy, right? We, we talked about how for most of us, we read that genealogy and we tune out. 
These names don't mean much to us. What's the significance here? We don't get it. It's because we're not seeing it through the eyes of the people it was originally written to. The British novelist in the first half of the 20th century, L.P. Hartley, said this. He said, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Part of my hope for this series is that not only will I help us kind of unpack the cultural context of Matthew, but also the historical context of Matthew. That we might see more clearly what Matthew was trying to convey to his original readers and what God would have for us. Matthew writes within 30 to 40 years of Jesus' ascension. So it's written before 70 AD. And he's one of the three gospels that we know of as the synoptic gospels. Same optics. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell a very similar story. John is the outlier here for specific reasons. Uh, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell a very similar story of Jesus' life. The focus of Matthew, and we want to keep this forefront throughout the entire series, is that Matthew is, is determined to show his fellow Jews that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And you might remember that in uh, Matthew, we will see uh, this pointed to the, the fulfillment of, or as the prophets wrote, nearly 25 times in its 28 chapters. Matthew puts an incredible importance on the Old Testament. And so Matthew, for us, as those in the 21st century, who often can kind of treat the Old Testament as like, oh, we don't need the Old Testament. We got Jesus. We don't need the Old Testament. Matthew proclaims boldly and loudly, you don't understand Jesus if you don't have the Old Testament. And so I hope that this book will also help us appreciate the Old Testament in even greater ways. Well, if, Jesus, if Matthew's focus is the fulfillment of God's promises, he does that through two kind of sub-focuses. One, that Jesus is the promised king. Now, after Jesus dies and is resurrected and ascends, part of the challenge that the apostles had was to convince people that Jesus was the Messiah. Because he didn't look like the Messiah. He didn't kick Rome out. He wasn't sitting on a throne. He, he didn't bring political liberation. And so for many Jews, Jews would say, no, he wasn't the Messiah. You're kidding me. Like, there's no way. And so Matthew is determined, and he will give us his best argument possible to say he is the promised king, the promised Messiah. In addition to that, then Matthew will say as a result that he is the Messiah, the way we live in this world shifts because we live in his kingdom under his rule. And so after we get through the, the first four chapters unpacking who Jesus is as the king, we then will unpack five different blocks of teaching in which Jesus taught his disciples and Matthew passes on to us what Jesus taught. And you're going to know the first one. We'll get to it in June. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. You have heard it said, but I say to you, this king calls us to live differently in the world. So Matthew's focus will be the promises of God fulfilled in Christ as the anointed king. And as the anointed king, we live differently in his kingdom. My prayer for our time in Matthew, I shared with you a couple weeks ago, is this. I would pray that each and every one of us over the, the next couple of years would have a greater confidence in who Jesus is as the promised Messiah, as the king. That we would have greater clarity in what it means to faithfully follow him. And because of that, we would be equipped to compellingly share the gospel with others and disciple them as followers of the King of Kings. This month, though, we begin with uh, Matthew and proclaiming and heralding the arrival of the King, the birth of the King, the Anointed One. Last week, or two weeks ago, I challenged you to memorize this for this month. This was going to be our, our memory verse for the month of December. It's really simple, but it's profound. And I hope that you started to commit it to memory, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Matthew starts by proclaiming who Jesus is and that he's the fulfillment of God's promises. In fact, he proclaims that Jesus is the center of the whole story. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second. My family, because we got young kids, an 11-year-old through a 4-year-old, when we commit to memorizing scripture, we do it in a couple of ways. Sometimes we do it through music. I'm the least musical of my family. It's a painful thing um, for them. I guess I don't really know how bad I am. But uh, the other way we do it with little kids is we create hand motions. And so when we have a memory verse, I'm going to share this with you for those of you who have kids or those of you who just struggle to memorize. And what I share it with you is for some flexibility, the important thing is to commit this to memory that God might allow you to meditate on it. Um, And you can do that as sillyly as you want. So here's our silly way of memorizing this. We sat around the table and we asked the kids, all right, so what are we going to do? So the book, right? That's an easy one. The book of the genealogy and the kids' faces go blank. They're like, what? That doesn't work. But they heard Gene in there. So the book of the pull up your genes, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So whatever you do to commit this to memory, meditate it on this month, is a powerful verse proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Well, two weeks ago, we talked, we looked at the first half of this chapter in the genealogy. And what, uh, among the many things that Matthew is communicating, he proclaimed that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the promised king, the Messiah. And and along in that genealogy, we get people who aren't Jews. and, And it was the proclamation, as we'll see at the end of the book as well, that Jesus came to the Jews, but for all people. That Jesus was good news for Jew and Gentile. And as we saw, this wasn't because uh, the family of, of, of Jesus' line and his lineage was perfect. They didn't get it all right. No, this happened because God was sovereign. And he worked through what one dear sister called at the end of the last sermon, a dysfunctional family. It truly is a dysfunctional family when you think of the genealogy of Jesus. And yet what encouragement there is for us that God worked through the dysfunctions and the mistakes and the sin and the brokenness of this family for his good purposes. It's a tremendous encouragement to us because none of our families are perfect. No matter how much we try, no matter how much we wish they were, our families and our family lines are dysfunctional to some extent. Well, Matthew used the genealogy of Jesus to to proclaim the fulfillment of God's promised blessing to Abraham. He used the genealogy of Jesus to proclaim God's promised blessing to David. And he used this to say this was God's work. Not the work of the dysfunctional family, of power, of royalty, of of the purposes of man, but this was the result of the purposes of God. How great is our God that he can work through an imperfect people. Indeed, as we'll see today, that's the heart of much of this message, that our God, who is omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipotent, chooses to work through us, who are none of those things, and yet he does. Well, where last week we looked at the beginnings of Jesus, the genealogy, today we look at the beginning of Jesus and his birth, at least the beginning of his earthly life. So we're going to pick up in verse 18, and that's 18 through 25 today. So if you've got uh, your text in front of you, go ahead and open it up, uh, and if not, it'll be on the screen. Here we go. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Jesus, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So get ready to dive into this text. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thanks for the chance to be together with this sweet family of God. Thank you for calling and bringing my family here. Thank you for a year together. Um, Lord, just your graciousness there. Lord, as we have the privilege and the joy of worshiping you this morning and opening your word, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would use it to deepen our understanding of who you are, of our deep need for you, and the incredible good news of the gospel. So Father, I just pray that you would give my voice the strength it needs. Um, Lord, that you would um, use the imperfect nature of my words and and the sermon to convey the, the, the incredible truths of your word and your love for us. Pray all these things in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, well, let's dive in. Today's section, uh, we see uh, lots of things, but here's at least three key things we see in this section today. Faithfulness matters. Obedience matters to God's sovereign plan. That we are faithful and we obey because of his plan, but through faithfulness and obedience, his plan is brought about. It really does just blow my mind. That the God of the universe who could click his fingers, he wouldn't even have to do that, right? He he spoke the world into existence. He doesn't need us. And yet he calls for us to faithfully and obediently follow him. That he might use us as part of his plan to bring people to Jesus Christ and to a saving faith in him. Today's section is broken up into three different sort of pieces of the stories that unpacks. Here they are. First, Joseph's dilemma. What is he going to do as he finds his wife he's engaged to pregnant? And then we discover the Lord's plan in this all, and we learn that this is a promise fulfilled. So let's dive into Joseph's dilemma first. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, Resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, I probably won't do this through the entire series, but I want to train us to read carefully, to notice and pay attention. So here's the things to pick up what I did two weeks ago that I would encourage you to circle, underline, highlight, whatever you have with you. Betrothed, before, from, a just man, and unwilling. Now, Matthew begins this section with, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It's a definitive shift from where he was in the first 17 verses. You'll know that in verse 1 of Matthew 1, he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He gives us the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And now, having pointed us to the lineage that he comes from, the way that God had fulfilled his promises there, he shifts to, now, let me tell you about his birth. Now, this is a continuation of what we saw in the genealogy. You might remember at the very end of the genealogy, the words used there indicate that Jesus' birth is weird. It's unusual. Joseph wasn't a part of Jesus' birth. He wasn't a part of Mary's pregnancy. Joseph, Jesus was born to Mary, but not because of Joseph. And so now Matthew begins to unpack. What does that mean? What is the significance of this? What was God doing? Now, the Greek text here in verse 18, the emphasis is placed on Jesus Christ. 
Just like the genealogy led to Jesus Christ in a countercultural way. Genealogies didn't lead to people. Genealogies came from people. In the same way that Matthew said, no, 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 no. Abraham and David lead to Christ. Matthew wants his readers and us to keep Jesus Christ the focus. We're going to focus a lot on Joseph. But don't lose the fact that Joseph was a part of God's plan for Jesus Christ. So this is all about Jesus' birth and coming into the world. You'll notice right off the bat that this telling of Jesus' birth is short, and it misses a pretty important piece. We don't see Mary very much in the story. And if you've ever read Luke 1 and 2, or you've been to a nativity play, or in some way, you're like, wait, wait, hold on, where's Mary? She's supposed to be a part of this story. Well, as I mentioned two weeks ago, the, the Gospels tell us different perspectives with different purposes. And so Matthew's purpose, as you remember, was focused on Jesus through the line of Abraham and David, that Joseph was a son of David. And so Matthew focuses on Joseph's story. It's Luke 1 and 2 that gives us Mary's story. And so the genealogy in Luke is focused on Mary. The telling of the birth of Jesus is focused on Mary and Luke. Together, these give us a fuller picture. And so I encourage you throughout this week, if you get a chance, turn to Luke 1 and 2 and read those as we head towards Christmas. But today, we're going to look at what Matthew has to tell us about Joseph. In order to understand why we've highlighted what we have here, we've got to do a little bit of cultural background study. What did it mean that they were betrothed and married? Well, in Jewish custom, apologies that this is somewhat small, in Jewish custom, parents would come together and they would make plans for two young people to get married, a young man and a young woman. And they would have a conversation between the parents. And, and actually, what we know culturally by the point of, of Jesus and Mary is that those parents would talk, but then they would go to their kids and say, hey, how, how do you feel about this? Joseph, how do you feel about marrying Mary? Mary, how do you feel about marrying Joseph? And, and so by this part, by the first century in Jewish custom, it was arranged, but it was also consensual. There was an agreement, yes, we think this is good. And so Mary has agreed to marry Joseph, and Joseph has agreed to marry Mary. Um, what's interesting, just to kind of uh, complete aside, you get a history professor for a pastor, and you get these weird asides. In Roman culture of the day, there was no arranged marriages. It was all consensual, kind of like our day. And it was Romans that did engagement rings. So if you got an engagement ring, that practice dates 2,000 years ago, 2,000 plus years ago. All right, so they agree to marry. They get engaged. At this point, the husband is financially invested in the marriage. He either gives the full dowry or half of the dowry for the bride to her family. It is his down payment on a faithfulness to her, to provide for her, to care for her. That's where this begins. And then they spend a year engaged, a year of betrothal. Now, they are legally married at this point, but they do not live together. They are not allowed to live together. In fact, they are not allowed to, to yeah, they're not allowed to live together. They're not allowed to come together. Um, this is a year of engagement. It is the opposite of our culture. In our culture, it's try it before you buy it. Oh, I don't know. Is this going to work out? And then we, we tank our own marriages because we do things before the marriage we, that we're supposed to be after the marriage. And the Jewish culture, they say, no, 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 we're going to spend a year showing our faithfulness to one another. And then we will get married. And so they're engaged for this year as a betrothal. They're separated, but they're not married. And then at the end of this year, there would be the wedding. And we think of the wedding feast of Cana in John 2 here and how important that is. And so that's what they're headed to. That's what Mary and Joseph, they're engaged. They're heading towards the wedding and life together. This entire period from engaged through the wedding, they are legally married. The only way that this can be broken up is through an official divorce certificate. Born by two, or, or sorry, witnessed by two people at least. 
And so when Matthew tells us that all this is taking place in this season, in, in the betrothal period, it, it helps the, the Matthew's readers know, whoa, this is a big deal. It sets us up. And, and, and as I was talking to somebody after the first service, it, it clicked in my mind. It's like, Lord, why now? Why not wait till they're married? Sure, it would have been a whole lot easier and more convenient for Mary and Joseph. Because as we'll see today, the fact that Mary gets pregnant here creates significant challenges for Joseph and Mary. But I get ahead of myself uh, a little bit. Um, the other thing to comment on here is that it's during this betrothal period that you might remember from Luke that, that Mary goes and spends three months with Elizabeth. That wouldn't have been abnormal during this one-year engagement, right? They're married, but they're separated. But it also makes us think that when she came back after three months, she's probably showing. She's probably out of her first trimester. It's pretty clear that she is pregnant. And it might begin to be the question mark of, what did you do while you were at Elizabeth's? But again, I get ahead of myself. All right. So if you remember from two weeks ago, Matthew's already indicated in the genealogy that Jesus' birth is different, that it's miraculous, that it had nothing to do with Joseph. Matthew hits that home in a, in a powerful way here. That this child is from the Holy Spirit. Now this is unique. It is not the gods coming down and having sex with Mary as the, the rest of the culture would have proclaimed uh, for their gods and their pantheon. No, this is a child that has come out of the Holy Spirit. That has come from the Holy Spirit. But there is no physical relationship here. The fact that Mary has become pregnant is simply that the Holy Spirit has placed this baby in her womb. So there's something about our God that functions differently than the rest of the gods. Well, Matthew, Matthew then will go on to show us how much Joseph wrestles with this, right? Mary has been gone. She returns and he discovers she's pregnant. And we're told that her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. They were husband and wife. From all appearances, she had been unfaithful. And what the law said and what culture said is that she, he should divorce her. If, he, if she could not be trusted in this engagement betrothal period, how could she be trusted after the wedding? And so he begins to think about what he might do. How might he respond? And, and we're told that being a just man, he's unwilling to put her to shame. I want to pause here because we don't see this the way that Jewish readers would have. Keith Bailey, who's now gone on to be with the Lord, was born in the Middle East. He spent 40 years doing ministry in the Middle East. And I think Egypt, Israel, Jordan, I can't remember where else. Um, and he wrote a wonderful book. If you ever get a chance to read it, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, it's all about the Gospels. How do we understand the Gospels differently? And, and I'll tell you more about that in the weeks to come. But he unpacks this conversation about what does it mean that he was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. Bailey argues, and I think he's correct here, that the unwilling to put her to shame is evidence of Joseph's deep love for Mary. Culturally, he had every right to put her to shame. Culturally, every, he had every right to put her out in the public and, and completely shame her to where she would never be married again, to where she would have no friends. He had every right, both biblically and culturally, to make a big deal out of it. Because you know what's happened here, right? She has gotten pregnant, and that reflects on him. Did he do something wrong? And, and, and the public shaming says, no, it was her. And he's not willing to do that. He's not willing to take this woman he loves who now has found herself in an incredibly difficult situation of being pregnant, will soon find herself unmarried if he divorces her. He's not willing to make it worse. 
even though culture would have told him to, and he would have had every right to. His heart is broken, and yet he chooses to extend grace and love to this woman who's hurt him. What we see in Joseph is not a cold, prearranged marriage. No, we see in Joseph a warmth and love for his wife, who's disappointed him. But that leads us back to this conversation of just man. Why does Matthew include that? If I'm honest, in my head, when I see just man, I think of justice and righteousness. And, and when I think of Joseph, I often think of Joseph as being like this teetotaler. He, he just checked all the boxes. He was the really faithful guy. And so I look at this, I'm like, that doesn't make sense, right? She has betrayed you. Justice is not being unwilling. Justice is, man, I'm going to bring me on the full brunt of the law. She has hurt me. She has betrayed me. And yet what's clear here is that is not what is meant by justice. But as we think about those who have wronged us, as we look at the culture around us, so often that's exactly how we think of justice. You hurt me, and I'm going to do everything I can to make you pay for it. You think about why our culture is such a litigious culture, why we take people to court for everything. It's because I deserve that. You wrong me. And Joseph here could have said, you wrong me, and I will get justice. But he doesn't. He commits to divorce her quietly. Keith Bailey unpacks this, and I think rightfully so, by looking back to Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah here shortly. He looks at a different part of Isaiah. Isaiah gives us four songs of the suffering servant. Now, we know on this side of the cross that these are songs about Jesus Christ, about the kind of king he would be. In the very first of these songs, in Isaiah 42, we get this. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Hmm. That doesn't make sense. He'll bring forth justice? How does justice have anything to do with a reed and a wick? What the prophet Isaiah is saying here about the suffering servant and what we see lived out in Joseph is that justice often comes out in grace and mercy to those who are exhausted and weak. In the ancient world, a a bruised reed, which would have been used for writing or for building, once it was bruised, it had no integrity left. It was literally good for nothing other than to be broken up, torn up, and thrown in the fire. It had no other purpose. A a faintly burning wick meant a wick that was at the end of its life. And, And if it didn't drop in water to be put out, it could light the entire house on fire. And so what Isaiah tells us about the suffering servant, and Joseph would have known this, is the suffering servant, he will not throw away the reed that seems like it has no purpose left. He will not put out the wick that is exhausted and near the end of its life. The suffering servant brings forth justice, but in graciousness and kindness. This is the type of justice that Joseph shows Mary. Mary finds herself pregnant by the Holy Spirit, a circumstance that few besides Elizabeth would have genuinely understood. Joseph, being a just man, could have shamed her. And say he doesn't. He divorces her quietly, or, or sets, apart, sets to, to divorce her quietly. Joseph is gracious and loving. He's a kind husband who finds himself in an incredibly difficult situation. And he seeks to offer grace to this woman who he loves but has broken his heart. I want us to pause here for a second because I think there's some things worth chewing on. 
While Matthew reminds us that God is in control, he doesn't remove the real, very real dilemma that Joseph faces. The incredibly difficult situation that he's wrestling with. Now Joseph does end up choosing the high road. He chooses a justice that extends grace. Church, I would argue that we find ourselves in similar situations, similar dilemmas throughout our life. How do we respond when our wives, our kids, our family, our coworkers wrong us? When they disappoint us? When they've done something and, 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 and what do we do? Like we look at them and in their sin, maybe they're exhausted and they're weak. Do we pile it on? Do we say, you hurt me and I am gonna hurt you worse? He or she deserves whatever I'm, is coming to them. We live in a society that literally will argue they get what they deserve. That's why our courts are so busy. Human nature says, I need vengeance. I hate revenge movies. I can't handle them. Paul in his letter writes this to the Philippians. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what Joseph chose here. He chose a gracious justice, a, a merciful justice that looked to the, the long-term needs and interests of Mary, even as he was thinking about divorce. For to stay wed to her was to spell disaster for him and his career and his family. But he did not want to pile it on. Church, I would argue that this is a defining aspect of the suffering servant that defines our God. Our God and his justice could pile it on. He has every right to. He has every right to not only send us to hell, but to, to throw in our face every single reason that we should be in hell. And yet, what did our just God do? In his grace and his mercy, he extended great love to us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And he sent his son to pay the price for our sins. Joseph faced the dilemma. And God was good and gracious. Joseph sought to be faithful in the midst of this dilemma. But then God shows up and everything changes. So let's take a look at God's plan. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If you're circling or highlighting, I'd encourage you to circle or highlight these. Son of David, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As Joseph considered the dilemma he faced, he was wrestling with that. The, the word here considered uh, involves angst. It involves even maybe anger, depending on who, who you read. But he is heartbroken and struggling, as any of us would. He is disappointed. He is frustrated. He is, he is upset at what, God is, at what not what God has done, what has been happened to him. And what it seems like the choice his wife has made. It's in the midst of this that God sends a messenger, an angel, to tell Joseph that what has happened is all part of God's plan. That things are not as they look. That God is at work behind the scenes in ways he does not understand and has not seen. And what I love about this is as the message comes, it starts with Joseph, son of David. God starts his message through the angel with a, a voice of encouragement. Joseph, you are in the line of David. Joseph, you are in the line of kings. Joseph, remember your heritage. Remember the story. Joseph, I, I have a purpose for you. 
And so God begins by affirming his purposes and encouraging Joseph. And he addresses right away the very real concerns that Joseph is facing. Do not fear to take your wife. Now, what might Joseph have been afraid of? Lots of different things, right? It could be that he was afraid of a holy God who, who he knew had set out in his law that there's a question of faithfulness and unfaithfulness and, and what to do. It could be that he was afraid of man and what would man think of him if he married Mary? Would, would people think that they had not waited during their engagement year? Would he think that somehow, would people think that he was somehow weak? Would, would he lose business because people wouldn't want to do business with a couple who got pregnant before they were married. We don't know what he was afraid of, but we know that he was afraid and we can relate to that fear. And I love that God says, you are a son of David and do not be afraid. God addresses these two things immediately. And then the messenger says, here's what I'm doing. Now, if you're a reader at Matthew and the original Greek, you've already seen glimpses of this, right? Matthew is hitting home for us what God is doing. We saw it at the end of the genealogy in 16. Mary, of whom Jesus was born. That Jesus came from Mary, not by Joseph. And in 18, we got the the clear declaration that this child is from the Holy Spirit. And now, Joseph is told what we already knew as the readers. Matthew is so confident in Mary's pregnancy that he wants us to be confident. That this is the work of God for the purposes of God. And here, the messenger brings that same message to Joseph. The baby in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. It is the work of God. Mary will give birth to a son. What incredible news. Now, I've had some family and friends who haven't chosen to find out the sex of their kid, but what a luxury we have that we can. During the time of Joseph and Mary, no one knew. Sure, there were wives' tales. Oh, the belly's hanging this way. It's probably a girl. Oh, she's hungry for this. It's probably a boy. But that was about the extent you got. And here, Joseph is told the baby in in her womb is a son. God, his goodness and his gracious goes far beyond what he needs to tell Joseph. So Joseph is one of the few at the time who knew the baby he would hold in his arms six months later, five months later. And the angel says, not only will you hold this son, you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus in the Greek is the the form of Joshua in the Hebrew. And Jesus and Joshua both mean Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. If you named your kid Joshua or Jesus, you did it to remind yourself, your family, your community of that truth. That Yahweh saves, not this child. This child's name is simply a reminder of the truth of a God who saves. And what we see in Matthew is that this is not just any ordinary Jesus or Joshua. This baby that, that, Jesus, that is, being, is growing in Mary's womb is not just another one that's to remind us of God's faithfulness. No, the angel makes it very clear. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save us, his people, from their sins. What? No, 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 that's not the way this works. The Lord saves people from their sins. And what we get here in verse 20 is a beautiful declaration of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Matthew's proclaiming for his readers that Jesus is not just another Jesus, he is God incarnate. Because only God can save his people from his sins. That was widely accepted among the Jews in the Old Testament. The only person 
who can save us from our sins is the Lord. And the Lord has become a baby. So this Jesus doesn't remind us of the God who saves. This Jesus is the God who saves. It's the greatest news of all. That the baby in Mary's womb, the son that will be born, is the promise of God fulfilled. You think that would change Joseph's perspective some? It doesn't make it any easier in many ways. But man, it's a hard decision made with the right purpose. Now what's important here and what people will come to know about Jesus and be disappointed is Jesus did not come to liberate them from Rome. He did not come to give them political freedom. He came to deal with their sins. Jesus' birth is about as much, as, as much about his people as it is the situation they're in, or more so, actually. This is amazing news. It would have hit Joseph profoundly. Mary is pregnant not because she's been unfaithful, but because she's been faithful. She's pregnant because God is working in her to come amongst us in the flesh. Joseph was considering how to divorce Mary quietly, how to honor her in the hardest moment of his life. And God sends a messenger to say, you don't need to. Your wife, who minutes ago you thought was unfaithful, is actually my chosen vessel to bring good news to my people. Now to say that this engagement is not going according to plan for either Mary or Joseph is to put it mildly. This is not what you expect in the betrothal. One year ago, my first sermon with you all, uh, we looked at 2 Chronicles 20. And you might remember that, that the king of Israel calls the people and say, we don't know what to do. And in their prayer, they said, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And when I think of Joseph and I think of Mary, what I see clearly in both of them is, Lord, we don't know exactly how to handle the situation. This is not an easy situation you've called us to, but our eyes are on you. And so Joseph chooses to obey. Church, have you ever experienced God asking you to say yes to something that was incredibly costly? That meant giving up something you really wanted? That meant, um, uh, uh, meant a great cost maybe in salary or in, or in the life you thought you would live or the, the things you thought you would do? Because let's make no mistake, what, Jesus, what God is asking Joseph to say yes to will impact the rest of their lives. We already know that shortly after his birth, he's going to have to flee to Egypt to live among a people they don't know, a strange land, away from their family. Raising kids is hard. It's even harder in a different culture without your family around. Saying yes to God often requires high cost in our lives. I mean, it's easier to say yes to that high-paying job, but it's right to say no when you know God doesn't want you to take it. Man, it's hard to give up that career that you desire when you know that God's asking you to stay home with your kids or to serve in a nonprofit where you won't make a bunch of money. It's hard to hold off pursuing that dream or that startup business idea you have because God's made it clear that this is not the time. Mary and Joseph's engagement did not look like, I would imagine, anything that they thought it would. All of a sudden, Mary's pregnant. When they get to the wedding... We're celebrating a bride who's pregnant. Can't imagine there were a whole lot of people who showed up at that wedding. But the truth is that God was faithful. And obedience to him was hard. But it was right. Because what we see next is that God does an incredible thing through the faithfulness 
in obedience of Joseph and Mary. Picking up in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In this section, I encourage you to circle, fulfill, Emmanuel. He did, and Jesus This is the first of 53 instances in the Gospel of Matthew where Matthew points us back to the Old Testament writings where he will draw from no fewer than 25 of the Old Testament books to show us how God has fulfilled his promises. We can imagine the people of Matthew's day, the Jews of Matthew's day, saying, prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is the beginning of that case that he's making for them. What we see here is a clear understanding that God was speaking through his prophets. It was not simply prophets who were speaking, but the very word of God. And while the the, the prophecy here did, yes, find its fulfillment in Isaiah's day in some way, it found its greatest and final fulfillment in Jesus Christ. For it's in Jesus Christ alone that we get Jesus, the Lord who saves with us, Emmanuel, God in human flesh. Save us from our sins. It appears from the way that this is written by Matthew that the the angel would have shared this verse with Joseph because then Joseph wakes. Church, there's something really encouraging for us here. When uh, the angel comes with this message to Joseph and says, Joseph, I need you to do something incredibly costly and hard, uh, the angel points him to the word of God. Church, in our lives, as we walk with the Lord and the Lord calls us to faithfully follow him, may we be a church that points each other to the word of God, that we stand on his word for moving forward. And the angel gives this gift to Joseph to say, stand on the word of my prophets, that you can move confidently ahead, though no one will understand. So Joseph, having seen and heard the stream and the message from the Lord, an obedience that will be costly, he awakes And with courage and with boldness and determination, he obeys at great cost. What would people say about him, about his wife? What would they think? What would it mean for their family, for their work, for their life and community? Sorry, wrong my brain. Um, Who might not hire him for his skills as a construction guy because of their story now? And yet, despite both the immediate and long-term cost, Joseph obeys. Though no one would believe them, Mary and Joseph would always know that the, the miracle they held in their arms was God's good work. That they held Emmanuel, God, with us. Something not everyone would understand. In fact, few. Despite the claims by some that Mary remained a virgin, we see here in the text that clearly they came together after the birth of Jesus. They had saved this design of God's, of God's for marriage alone. Well, Joseph and Mary follow faithfully in obedience, and it's costly. But they do it because there's a profound truth at play that God's salvation plan invited them to be a part of it. Their obedience and faithfulness was a key to how God would bring salvation for his people. As we'll see in chapter 2, Joseph's faithful obedience to the Lord would continue to guide his steps every step of the way. Well, as we draw today's passage to a close, Matthew has continued to shout from the pages, Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the fulfillment of it. He is God with us. He has come to save our sins. 
Church, let's be encouraged and challenged by the text today. What, when things don't go according to plan and we face a dilemma, the question is, how do we respond? Would it be written of us that he or she was a just person who looked to divorce someone quietly? Would someone say of us they walked faithfully with God, but they did it in a way that extended grace and kindness? When God asks us to do something that comes at great personal cost, will we be faithful to obey him? Will we follow his plan? When the Lord led my parents 40 years ago to, to become missionaries overseas, you know what my mom said? Lord, send us anywhere but Africa. Where did God call them? Africa. For 20, over 20 years. And what I love about it is my mom was transparent enough with the Lord to say, I really don't want to go to Africa. But when it became clear that's where God wanted her, she said, yes, I'll do it. And it meant a great sacrifice. I'll never forget driving away from my grandparents in L.A. And my grandma's in the back, is behind the car, buckets of tears. Because she doesn't get to know her grandkids. My parents moving overseas came at great cost. Yes, God did incredible things. I'm thankful for my upbringing. But obedience came at a cost. The truth is that obedience will always come at a cost. And church, will we be the kind of people who, who will obey and follow regardless of the cost? Or will we be a people who hold doggedly to our plan, the way we want it to turn out? Or will we be a people who don't obey out of fear of what others might think? But the truth that we get in this incredible story is that through faithfulness and obedience, God brought salvation through this young couple whose story did not go according to their plan. Well, today we're reminded of the faithfulness, that faithfulness to the Lord matters. That faithfulness expresses itself in obedience, that God might work out his plan through us. And I, I just will reiterate one more time, I don't get why the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God would choose to work through us, except that I understand his great love for us. We were never a mistake. We were never an addition to the plan. He wanted to bring his plan through us. He proclaims the great love and incredible power and sovereignty of our God. And so as we share the gospel with our family, with our neighbors and our friends and our colleagues, we do it as part of what God has called us to, regardless of the cost. We get to be a part of the story that God is telling and the work that he's doing. I want to leave us with three questions, and I know my time's up, so I've run a little long today. I want to leave us with three questions today. Here's the things I would encourage you to pray over the next couple of weeks. Lord, am I seeking to be faithful to you in all I do? Am I seeking to be faithful to my spouse, to my kids, and to my commitments? Am I loving with grace and kindness to even those who have wronged me? Lord, am I obeying you in all that you've asked me to do? Is there something that you've asked me to do that, that I've run away from, that I've, I've refused to obey because the cost is too great? Or my fear is too great. And lastly, pray this. Lord, am I trusting your sovereign good plan? That your plan desires your glory and the salvation of others, and you want to do that in part through me, in a way that, that, that goes above my comfort, my ease, and my own plan. Will I sacrifice those to trust you? Church, these aren't easy questions. It is not an easy thing to follow the Lord. But they're questions that Joseph and Mary had to wrestle with. 
And the answers to them that Matthew faithfully proclaims is the answer to us. We serve a faithful, good God who is bringing salvation to the world through us if we will be faithful and obedient to follow him regardless of the cost. This morning, I hope you know that, God, because the first step of faithfulness and obedience is to place your faith in Jesus Christ and trust him. If you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, if you don't know what it means to have a personal relationship with this God who has revealed himself to us from Genesis to Revelation, who desires to have a relationship with you and to work through you in all of your imperfections for his glory, today's a great day to place your faith in him and begin that relationship with him. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for sustaining my voice this morning. Thank you for the grace and the kindness that this family of God has shown my family in the last year and this morning especially. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are humbled that you call us to be a part of your plan. Lord, we're encouraged by Joseph and Mary's faithfulness. We recognize it came at great cost to follow you. So Lord, I pray for myself and everyone in this room, Lord, that we would follow you with that kind of faith that regardless of the cost of saying yes to what you're calling us to, we would trust you, even when it's not easy. Father, for anyone in this room who's headed to the holidays and doesn't yet know you personally, the, the God who came to be with us to save us from our sins, Lord, I pray that today might be the day that they place their faith and their trust in you, for you are the one that saves them from their sins and calls them into a glorious life following after you. Not easy but glorious. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for our Jesus, our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us today. For further information about today's podcast or our church in general, please visit us at cornerstonecbc.org. That's cornerstonecbc.org. Thanks. See you next time.